Hello. Thanks for listening to this Dharma podcast. I hope you consider that in accordance with the Buddhist tradition, all of my work as a teacher is offered without charge and supported entirely by donations only. If you'd like to support this work, you'll find a PayPal button on dharmapunksnyc.com. On our website, you'll find resources and a free sample from my Wisdom Publications book, Unsubscribe, which is available at bookstores and online retail outlets. Thanks for listening. going to be talking about developing a spiritual practice to withstand these shitty times we're living in. (laughs) Shit times. Shit times. And how can we have a practice that conditions a sense of resilience, a sense of strength to put up with all this nonsense going on? While we are by any, I think, measure, living in um, trying times in terms of just the fact that experts are predicting looming environmental catastrophe with ever-encroaching dates. The most recent UN climate paper suggested 2030 will start seeing devastating climate change such as uh, entire regions of the earth will become uninhabitable and of course devastating weather events from droughts to hurricanes and if that wasn't enough to bring you down then we have the uh, uh, corresponding growth of fascism across the globe, even in countries traditionally associated with a degree of standardized democracy and individual rights, such as the country that we live in today. On the other hand, we are lucky to be living in the first time in human history where a successful model that um, outlines in a compelling and verifiable way what our core psychological needs are to establish emotional regulation and uh, a sense of balance established through untold decades of theory and research. We have finally stumbled upon attachment theory, which uh, is a massive breakthrough in the sense that finally we have a uh, insight into what causes the bulk of human psychic agitation distress what our needs are that when met can alleviate personality disorders and symptomology pathologies and so forth and that's important because we're not stumbling around in the dark anymore hoping that with blind faith that this or that superstitious belief or ideology will hopefully get our needs met. Uh, There's actually very persuasive, hard, cold mountains of clinical research that show that, one, human beings, we are all born with an attachment system that has evolved over the course of natural selection with the chief goal of maintaining proximity between ourselves and caregivers when we're in infancy so that we can essentially get our 
uh, core survival needs met, not just for food, uh, not just for warmth, but in fact the dominant need that's met through attachment is having someone, even in the earliest infancy, being able to see our emotions, understand our emotions, soothe our emotions, and let us know what we're experiencing. And in fact, in the experiments, uh, which were kind of horrific, but the experiments of Harry Harlow with the uh, uh, baby rhesus monkeys showed that uh, given a choice, primates will actually choose nurture without food over food without nurture. So our emotional needs early on in life are paramount. So if a uh, we this attachment system basically is pretty simple works as follows when uh, an attachment figure is not close enough to make us feel safe seen soothed uh, protected then we cry or we make a distress call the attachment figure hopefully comes and then our attachment system switches off and. If there's a reliable pattern of attachment in childhood where we feel safe and understood and soothed and encouraged, then we have what's called a secure base. And a secure base is a really important term to know. If you've got it, you feel encouraged to explore. You feel uh, positive expectations of your future in relationships. You are confident stating your needs. You are capable of, of reaching after opportunities. You don't live with core shame that constantly makes you feel like a fraud or imposter. So all these uh, very, very significant criteria or developmental milestones are met if you've got a secure base. And all of that is established if somebody reliably, when they hear your cry or you seek attention, stops and responds to your bids for uh, being seen and uh, essentially looks at you, pays attention, mirrors your emotions. And what that does is, again, with the secure base, it deactivates your attachment system, switches it off, and allows you to go into a second mode, which is called explore, where you can develop, you can explore the environment, you can take risks, you can try out new skills, you can uh, essentially be a growing individual because you know there's somebody there that has your back that will help you pick up the pieces if something bad happens while you explore and you take risks and you uh, embrace opportunities. And we have this need from birth to death. never goes away. There is no time in your life or my life where we ever graduate from our attachment needs. Um, if we don't get reliable attachment early on, if our caregivers are either emotionally distant or they're overwhelmed and their emotions are not attuned with ours or they are in any way frightening, then our attachment system can either remain hyperactive where we're constantly expecting abandonment and constantly preoccupied and never capable of exploring the world, or on the other hand, we'll totally switch off our need for attachment 
For some of you, that might sound good, but no, there's a downside to it. <laughs> Those children and adults become essentially trying to get all their needs met outside of human relationships. They may eventually become emotionally numb. They emotionally suffer from significant depression. They emotion eventually find out feeling that their life is bereft of uh, core meaning or purpose. So pick it. Your choice, anxiety or depression, <laughs> anxious attachments, dysregulated, which is, you know, the children have been abused or avoidant. It's not good if we don't find a secure base, a reliable attachment. Now, adults, unlike children, can auto-regulate their emotional needs longer for longer periods, which means a child can go without uh, an attachment figure for a short period and then will become dysregulated and will start experiencing the stress. An adult can go without attachment for a series of days, but very quickly we too become dysregulated. And in fact, in the extreme conditions of solitary confinement, in as little as 48 hours, we start seeing emotional decompensation. Uh, Studies have shown by the University of Utah that the single deadliest factor in human life is emotional isolation. It's actually worse than smoking a pack a day, than being an alcoholic or a drug addict, or being overweight and or not exercising, by far. The, what happens with emotion dysregulation is not only do our immune systems essentially conk out over time, but we don't in any way stay emotionally balanced. And then over time we start making extremely self-sabotaging choices and almost invariably depression or extreme anxiety is the long-term result. So in adult life, one of the ways we maintain a secure base is by finding an appropriate spiritual path. That's the whole point of a spiritual path. Spiritual paths provide, most notoriously, an attachment figure. That's the ideal attachment figure. I, I am not Christian. My mother was Jewish. My dad was Buddhist. So I don't know what the fuck I'm talking about. But uh, obviously, for many people, Christ is the ideal parent figure, always available, always gentle, always kind, always appreciative, at least if they're emotionally healthy, the, the individual is, then Christ will be that. Uh, for us Buddhists, it could be the Buddha, or uh, it could be any of the, if you're Tibetan, any of the Tibetan deities. Uh, for many people it can be, um, in Hinduism, other deities. Uh, Muslims can either have uh, Muhammad or any other source of a secure attachment. Any spiritual path that presents itself as meeting your needs in complete isolation or completely reducing your the necessity of interpersonal relationships is not a spiritual path, it's a cult, and it's a dangerous one. 
and it is one that is engaging in a severe spiritual bypass, which is a psychological term for uh, validating emotionally avoidant coping strategies, avoiding being vulnerable, talking about our needs, our feelings with other people, and having someone hear us and validate our feelings and make us feel safe and heard. Spirituality at its best can help us compensate for early attachment disturbances that lead to addiction and self-harming behavior. Many, many people go into 12-step recovery and into other forms of spiritual practices, Buddhism, uh, Judeo-Christian, and across the spectrum of spiritual paths, Islam, uh, Hinduism, uh, Brahman, and so forth. And compensate for those early attachment disturbances where we constantly sought the feeling of being seen, cared about, um, and through the uh, having access to a community of people that are accepting and gentle and uh, don't turn us away, who don't judge us harshly, it can create a corrective emotional experience. And I've seen this in my own, I've been sober for 24 years, and I've seen thousands of, of individuals in my life who came in with severe psychological pathologies that have been significantly healed simply by having in their life a place to go where they could share about their feelings and hear other people share about their feelings without any judgment, without any shaming. So, um, in essence, it uh, redirects our needs towards objects and circumstances where our needs can be met, at least to a far greater degree. It can play a vital ro role in our emotional health and sobriety. But there are, of course, factors that can lead to a spiritual practice doing the exact opposite, being more harmful than good. One is that people can ingrain maladaptive internal working models established early on in their life, bad expectations of others, simply uh, by a factor called correspondence. Unfortunately, people who grow up in emotionally... Uh, uh, unavailable caretaking environments um, can develop really deeply ingrained negative expectations and can project those negative expectations upon their spiritual practice. So, for example, uh, while secure people generally visualize loving, kind, accepting, nurturing, non-judgmental, spiritual gods or significant figures, their teachers, they project those expectations on. Anxious individuals very often have very dramatic, grasping relationships with higher powers. They often live in the expectation, just like they had in childhood, of being easily abandoned. Avoidance view God, understandably, as remote, inaccessible, unavailable, doesn't care still they believe in him or, or her or whatever, nonetheless. Um, 
so many Jewish relatives in my family seem to believe in these these gods that were God was this most negative feature. Like I've never got that, but it, it's a uh, in children who grow up in emotionally avoidant backgrounds, they tend to not only choose partners who are emotionally avoidant, they tend to create emotionally unavailable, uncaring, distant, spiritual figures in their life. And they're also, even if you don't believe in a God, I don't, but if you don't believe in God, very often our feeling of the universe as a... Some people believe in the universe as this benevolent force that's loving and healing, a life force that's vital and uh, helping us and nurturing us. Some people have this sense when the chips are down that the universe is a cold or indifferent or a fickle place, depending on their attachment style. A recent fascinating study showed that disorganized individuals have an extreme predilection towards Extreme by which I mean in uh, terms of uh, prevalence of people who are attracted to these groups. They have a prevalence towards sudden conversions late in life. They have a heavy disposition towards born-again faiths. They not only have extremely punishing gods, they believe in parapsychology, UFOs, and also are extremely susceptible to cults with domineering uh, abusive figures. Essentially, they recreate their childhoods in their relationship to their spiritual past, much like they also gravitate towards jobs with abusive bosses and, and so forth. So we tend to recreate our early life dramas not only in relationships and in workplaces, but also in our spiritual faith. And that's important to understand. No matter how healthy or otherwise, there are three events that tend to activate our attachment system in life. And these are the times we most need a spiritual path that's healthy. And I'll, tell, I'll talk about what that looks like in a moment. Those three situations are, one, the experience of being abandoned or the threat of abandonment by a significant attachment figure. That's somebody that you rely on for the feeling of being emotionally understood, seen, cared about. If that figure uh, either is going to leave or die or become separated from you, that is an attachment trauma and that will trigger your attachment needs. The second is... Um, Illness, injury, any brush with mortality. Obviously, uh, from childhood on, any sense of the body no longer becoming uh, a safe conduit for life creates a, an extreme sense of the bottom dropping out, uh, confusion, overwhelm, emotional instability. And when people are sick, they need to feel the presence of uh, reliable care and awareness and security in their life. And the third are external events that trigger, that remind us of our early attachment wounds. For me, the most primary example of this is uh, Trump and his administration, I think for 
so many people I work with in counseling, certainly myself, creates an environment that is eerily similar to dysregulated families where one caregiver is emotionally un, is, is untrustworthy, prone to lying, denies culpability, claims victimhood for something that's, that they're not a victim of, ridicules vulnerability, picks on the vulnerable, and so forth. So what we have is essentially an environment that is deeply triggering for so many of us. And for those of us that are not triggered by it, those people grew up in such dysregulated households that they're like, oh, this is the way things are. <laughs> Dad was a complete narcissist, incapable of acknowledging any mistakes or uh, being in any way acknowledging of uh, the way he undercuts everybody else in the family, the way he makes false promises, the way that he essentially leads to instability. Just like good old dad, that's happening again. So everything is making complete sense to me. The rest of us who only got that a little bit of the time, this is a horror. So it triggers a, um, a need for a sense of security, a sense of reliability. Um, but just as children can lose faith in their attachment figures and become eventually emotionally avoidant and practice avoidant coping, we too as adults can lose faith in our spiritual path. Because for some of us, uh, the sign of all this stuff happening in some way creates the sense that our spiritual path isn't working. So that brings me to the final and most important part of the talk, which is crafting a resilient spiritual practice, which must contain or provide, I should say, the sense of being seen, being understood, being comforted, and being encouraged because life is hard, a figure that makes us feel appreciated and vitalized so that we can continue to get up in the morning and go about our lives. So those are the four things we all need from birth to death. The feeling of being safe and seen, emotionally understood, comforted when we're agitated, and encouraged to continue seeking our working towards a goal. So the first thing that any, for me by definition, healthy spiritual path should provide, no matter if you create your spiritual path out of whole cloth or whether you're thinking of any spiritual path, and Buddhism is just one of many and they're all valid, um, but a spiritual path must prioritize the importance of making connections with a community without robust, reliable, ongoing interactions with other adults, uh, everything else in the spiritual path is unfeasible and will not lead to any permanent sense of release or emotional health. You cannot, uh, there's no path that will alleviate our emotional needs for co-regulation. That's what our species is. The good news is that a good spiritual path with with access to a community 
can alleviate one of the great maladies of this age, which is that people try to get all of their attachment needs from one individual, which is the person that I would say dating, but now it's just texting on the phone <laughs> multiple times a day. Uh, but we try to get our attachment needs from one person. And as we know from the work of the anthropologist Robin Dunbar, that actually human beings were always uh, set up to have a small group of emotionally reliable, safe friends who were available. We lived in hunter-gatherer collectives where there would always be people there to process. And for the first time in history, we've essentially isolated ourselves to a degree where we try to get all of our needs met from one person. And then it's easy to be caught off guard by the fact that other people, other individuals do not want to meet all of our attachment needs. So the having a spiritual community of any form, from 12-step to Hinduism, Buddhism, any community having access to it will not only help you establish a greater degree of psychic um, uh, balance, but will also spare your relational partners. <laughs> Two, it's essential that we do not bring our needs for overcompensation into our spiritual path. That's a f fancy term for the fact that many of us seek from our spiritual practice a superpower that will come in and not only make us feel a little safer and a little bit more uh, emotionally regulated in our lives, but we want someone that will rescue all of our loved ones, that will um, make the universe a safe place, that will get rid of all the supervillains in the world, and will somehow compensate for our feelings of powerlessness. And frankly, this need for a spiritual practice or a higher power that is somehow responsible not just for your emotional regulation, but is also somehow responsible for righting all the wrongs uh, in the world, sets us up for extreme disappointment and shows a profound naivete about what spiritual paths are actually supposed to present. It's important to have a right-sized sense of what your spiritual path can achieve. Allowing you to experience a sense of being seen, understood, um, being soothed, and being encouraged. And to, for you to help give other people those needs or provide other people with a means to those needs being met. Three is that a spiritual path should help you develop a coherent narrative of your life. When we have traumas in our life or exceptional emotional wounds that are due to um, uh, catastrophic environmental events or attachment losses or to sickness or injury, um, it's tempting for us to make sense of these events in catastrophizing ways globalizing ways, like the universe is terrible, people are indifferent, everything is bad. And once again, 
if we have these globalizing narratives of our life, all we're doing is recreating the sense of abandonment over and over and over again, and then your spiritual path will not be able to alleviate through helping you meet this needs for being seen. So um, it's important in as part of our spiritual path to not view suffering as any form of punishment or any form of being singled out. That's why in the Buddha's first noble truth, he said it was universal. It's universal. Old age, sickness, death, loss of significant attachment figures, not getting what we want in certain situations and so forth. That suffering happens and it's not our fault. It's not about us. And this is important. Uh, spiritual paths that blame us for maladies keeps in place a narrative structure that keeps us emotionally uh, have our needs unmet. Very many Buddhists use rebirth as the sense of if a child is sick or if there's a population that has been uh, hit by drought or by floods that somehow in a previous life they've done something unskillful. Maladies do not necessarily happen because we've done anything wrong. They just happen, but still our core emotional needs can be met. And that's important to understand. Finally, um, any spiritual path should prioritize the importance of achieving regular states of awe. Awe, A-W-E, is a state of mind that's very different from our problem-solving, achievement, uh, getting things done, uh, staying busy, trying to uh, march through life to certain destinations. It's an awareness free of that left hemispheric focusing and fixing mindset. It's a very right hemispheric, as uh, in the Gilchrist language, in that it's not fixated or focused. It's an awareness that feels interconnected with the world, that doesn't dualistically separate ourselves from the environment or from other people, and creates this sense of a global awareness, a holistic awareness that's not just about, I need to to save this amount of money to get a new iPhone or to get this project done. It's this overall sense of connection to the natural um, qualities of being alive that are far more fundamental. And so uh, any spiritual path um, dissolves, according to the psychologist Paul Piff, dissolves self-fixation. It provides a state of what Chaheli Mahi called flow, where you don't experience time passing, you are deeply embedded, enmeshed, involved with some practice. Um, it allows us to put down our devices, to appreciate novelty, to see routines, experiences as if for the first time. It allows us to pay attention to underlying emotional and physical sensations that we generally overlook. For certain religions, this comes about through prayer or through chanting. 
And through Buddhist practice, it's largely through meditation. So that's it. The core needs are any good, healthy spiritual path, no matter which one you're following or you choose for yourself, they're all good so long as they encourage you to connect with the community, that you don't rely on them to fix all of the problems of the universe because the, the world has always been a shitty, fucked up place and it will be for the foreseeable future. Three, it helps you develop a coherent narrative that doesn't make you feel personally at fault or that you've done something wrong. It doesn't keep this sense of core shame going. And finally, it helps you in your life find a state of awe where you can detach from the stressful, fixated, accomplishing mind and get into a mind that really appreciates just the fundamentals of being alive. So that's it. That's the talk. Hope it was interesting. And now we're going to do a ideal parent figure practice in the midst of our um, practice to help get our core needs met from our spiritual path. And this is actually worse. It's actually what it is, is called uh, in Buddhism, Kaganusati. We're going to do a visualization after we establish a state of peace through our concentration practice then we're going to um, we're going to create the sense of being seen understood soothed and appreciated so we're going to have our spiritual practice meet all of our needs we're going to experience all and then all of our core attachment needs So find a really comfortable seated position. And just uh, closing the eyes. And if you like, just allow your body to wobble from left to right and front to back like a top. And just find, allow your body to come to a stop at what it feels is a good, balanced position. I found that many people, myself certainly included, tend to have a conceptual idea of what is balance versus a felt balance. And the felt balance is far more important. And the key factor of a felt balance is the sense that our head is not slouching in front of our chest. So if it helps, gently tilt the head a little bit back by lifting your chin. Uh, like you're looking at, again, a tall building. And just that subtle shift allows us to start balance from the top all the way down to the sit bones. And that's really so... Uh, Important when we have good balance, not only do we have less stress when we sit, but also good balance encourages us to connect with the physiological sensations of being alive. When there's all the stress involved with sitting upright, it tends to actually keep us up in our heads. 
because it makes the body uncomfortable. So nice balance, upright position and Let's take a few breaths just to fully land in this moment. So take a nice full in-breath through the nose and as you do, if you like, you can lift your shoulders like you're trying to touch your ears or pull them back or whatever you want to do and just when you breathe out, drop your shoulders and just Allow the chest to open up if that means slightly repositioning your shoulders so that your chest feels really open. And this uh, sends a message up to your midbrain saying, well, things are not as threatening as I thought they were because my chest is nice and open. I'm not contracted and defended. And so for the second in-breath, pulling in or pushing out your belly, whatever you feel is more appropriate. There's some who do pranayama breath. It's pulling out the breath, the belly, I should say. So just do whatever works and then relax with the out-breath, releasing any stress in the abdominal region. And again, if your abdomen is soft, relaxed, without contraction, that's another vagal vagus nerve message up through the spinal cord to the insula, to your midbrain saying, everything's okay. My chest is relaxed. My stomach's relaxed. I'm actually not in any threat right now. So I can feel much safer. And then a third breath, squinching all the muscles in the face really tight, just an ugly pinched face. And then as you breathe out, relax all the micro muscles around the eyes, the nose, the jaw. And there's actually a higher vagal, there's a polyvagal highway that works with the muscles in the face and higher order emotions read your facial expressions and get a cue from how your face muscles are, what their setting is. So relaxing your face actually contributes significantly as well overall to a sense of well-being. And throughout the day relaxing the chest, the belly, and the face are three significant contributing factors along with a long out-breath to an ongoing sense of felt security. And now trying to Find that 
state of mind that we experience when we're on the first day of a vacation. <clears throat> no sense of needing to get anything done. We don't have to go anywhere. We're already arrived at wherever we're spending this vacation. We don't have anything to do. We don't have anyone to take care of or worry about what they think. Any thoughts about the past are disinteresting. You don't want to bring the dramas and unfinished business of the world with you into your vacation. And you don't want to think about the future, what you'll be doing when your vacation ends. So any thoughts about anything other than what's happening right here and right now are not interesting. This is that special moment in life where you land at a place you've been looking forward to. And just as when you arrive at that favorite destination, you have a sense that there's nothing missing from this moment. Everything you need is available to you right now, right here. You're not incomplete. There's nothing you have to do to deserve being relaxed and peaceful. You've done all the hard work. Now's your time to just fully land in your life. Let go of all the momentum. And so try just to fill up your awareness with the sensations that are actually present. Try to get as close to them as you can. Don't try to push anything away that's actually happening. The sound of music bleeding into the space. (coughs) 
any and all sensations of the body, (coughs) any feelings of heat or cold or clamminess, lights flickering behind closed eyelids, not imaginary images, but just those closed eye abstract light patterns that happen when we close our eyes. The sense of attention wandering Perhaps the heaviness of tiredness or the energy of anxious predisposition. See if you can just embrace as closely as you can to all the sensations this experience, this moment, knowing it'll never happen again. That this is an opportunity to fully land and appreciate and connect with your life without the overlay of all the stories telling you that there's something missing or something you have to do or something that somebody else has to do in order for you to relax, experience a moment of peace. See if we can put aside that overlay and just be with the actual experience itself. You know, once in a while, thoughts can be very sly and can slip past with enticing visuals that are created entirely out of fantasies or past experiences. We can find ourselves suddenly removed from the actual experience into a virtual reality, a simulacrum. And when that happens, the most important practice is to not add any frustration or self-judgment. It's not personal. It happens to everyone from the newest practitioner to the most seasoned Buddhist teacher. Everyone's mind drifts. It's not a sign of anything other than just being in a human mind. And our job is simply to relax, back into the sensations that are surrounding us that are real and feel good about the fact you've woken up from a daydream.
So now that we've spent some time connecting with the actual sensations that are present, we're going to do a second practice, which is based on some visualizations, which Buddhist practice is actually traditionally fairly replete with. So one lovely practice is to at first imagine yourself to be right now in what could be best described as a secure bubble. You're surrounded not too closely but not too far away by an invisible circular force field that can protect you from any attack, any harm. And you can use this bubble to go anywhere and it cannot be penetrated. You can move backwards and forwards, float around in it. And so you can be as close or distant from people as you want, and just see if you can feel what it would be like to know that anytime you want you can have this sense of being secure, just to feel that sensation in your body and get to know what it's like when you can drop your guard, there's no possibility of being attacked criticized, because in this secure bubble you're safe. And with a sense of being safe, I'd like you to travel back in time in this bubble to a time in your life where you needed to have a loving, caring figure, an adult that would be there to explain what was going on, to make you feel understood, to help soothe you if you were lonely or frightened or upset or angry. But there wasn't any such figure due to stresses of caregivers or other events you were without the care that you needed. So just find a time in your past, hopefully a time when you were young. Let's just see if you can feel yourself in that that feeling of being smaller, more vulnerable, that sense of being overwhelmed but you're still in this bubble, so nothing can harm you in this practice. And now I'd like you 
to visualize, and this is very similar to what the Buddha called Deva Nusati, visualize who would have been the perfect, caring parent or adult figure that would have been available to you, who would have made all of your distress feel seen, who would have helped you feel less overwhelmed, less vulnerable, who would have helped you understood or understand why adults are behaving in such ways, who wouldn't make you feel powerless, but actually make you have a sense of having some say or some influence over events. So visualize entirely from your imagination, if that's possible, who would have been the ideal figure In the practice of Devanusati can be an angelic being, but in contemporary therapeutic practice, it's just visualizing an ideal parent figure, whichever you feel better with. Just visualize entirely out of your imagination who would have been ideal. See if you can have a sense of how they look at you, where you would be, how they would be conveying their care, their appreciation of you. Would you be in your childhood house or outdoors? Would you be in a certain room? Would you be standing or seated? Would they be looking at you or holding a hand or helping you feel confident, go somewhere, walking up a set of stairs or leaving a house? Just create the visual interpretation entirely created out of your imagination of what the perfect figure would have would be like and when you have this sense just feel into your body and get to know what the feeling of security is like if you know what security feels like when you meet people you can gauge whether they create that feeling of security. You can choose relationships, friendships, work. If you know what security feels like, you can know which situations are meeting it and which are not.
And lastly, before we end, see if you can if you can find some sense of ease in your body that is conditioned by feeling seen and cared about. See if you can spread that feeling. Visualize either other situations where you feel seen, cared about, or situations where you feel appreciated by others. Try to deepen and enhance that state of security. So in a moment I'm going to ring the bowl and very slowly when you feel like it open your eyes enough to see the lights and colors and see before you look around the room if you can integrate this embodied awareness into your visual awareness so that you don't allow thoughts and images to push all of your embodied awareness which is so vital for getting your needs met. After all, the bulk of our attachment needs are signaled physiologically. So you need to have an awareness of your body to make smart choices in life.